Hi, good morning. I'm going to read today our scripture from Genesis 18, verse 16 through 33. So if you'd like to grab your Bibles and join with me, or you can follow along on the screen. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done um, altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, and I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to them and said, Suppose 45 are found there, he answered. For the sake of the 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there, he answered. I will not do it. If I find 30 there, he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose... Twenty are found there, he answered. For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there, he answered. For the sake of the ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went this way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Thank you, Samantha. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. We are so glad you have chosen to worship with us today, whether you're online or here in person. Thank you for uh, coming to the house of worship, and may we hear from God himself today and be changed and different as we leave. Let us pray. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty perfect in power, in love, and in purity. 
how we desperately need to hear from you, whether we're watching online or here in person. And as you speak to us through your word today, may we not just be hearers of your word, but doers as well. Also, this 4th of July weekend, we humbly pray for our nation. Oh, Lord, please forgive our many sins. Please heal our brokenness, our strife, our division. Please give our elected and appointed officials wisdom to make godly decisions and to lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And we humbly ask for a spiritual awakening for our nation. Holy Spirit, this morning, please be our teacher. Open our hearts and our minds to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking at the life of Abraham through the book of Genesis. And as you heard the passage read this morning, did it not seem rather strange, rather odd to you? As I was rereading the passage, an event from my childhood came to mind. I grew up out in the country, and um, one day my dad and I and brothers were uh, visiting a, a farmer who had a fruit and vegetable stand and uh, had some fresh produce, beautiful. And my dad began to talk to the farmer and uh, they began kind of negotiating back and forth, especially these cantaloupe that were so juicy and, and just beautiful. And I remember my dad and us leaving that fruit and vegetable stand, three cantaloupe for one dollar. Now, even back in the 70s, that was, a, that was a pretty good deal. Well, it's back and forth, back and forth here in our passage. It looks like Abraham and God are in a marketplace haggling over the price of potatoes. And it's partly because uh, this is a prayer. Abraham is talking to the Lord. But more than a prayer is going on here. Abraham is not just praying. He is priesting. Priesting. Have you ever heard that term before? It's a term that Reverend Tim Keller, one of our PCA pastors, uh, uses to describe Abraham's pleading and intercession for Sodom. And some of uh, Tim Keller's commentary, comments, outline I'll be using today. Uh, he has a wonderful work uh, on this passage. Now, for most of us, when we hear the, hear the word priest, it's kind of a fuzzy, nebulous term, isn't it? But we'll clarify this morning as we consider three aspects to our sermon. Number one, we'll consider the first priest. Secondly, the great priest. Thirdly, the new priest. The first priest, the great priest, and the new priests. Now, we're going to look at Abraham and, and uh, refer to him as the first priest, but technically... Abraham is not the first priest mentioned in the Bible. If you remember, if you've been in this series of sermons, a few chapters back, we met a shadowy character named Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a king and a priest from the city of Salem that meets Abraham. But Abraham is the first priest in the Bible that we 
see actually doing priestly work. And the passage begins with God inviting Abraham into this priestly work, and Abraham is executing this work in some rather surprising ways. If you were listening and a part of the, the worship service last week, you remember that uh, Abraham and Sarah were met by three strangers that just showed up in the middle of the day uh, at their door. Well, actually, it was a tent flap since they lived in a tent. But uh, Abraham and Sarah uh, meet these two, or there are these three individuals, and one of these men is the Lord himself. The other two are angelic messengers. In today's passage, after having a, a wonderful dialogue with Abraham and Sarah, telling them that they're going to have a son within the next year, these three individuals begin walking towards Sodom and the cities of the plain. It's where Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his family live. It's at this point that, that God shows Abraham that he's going down to Sodom to specifically uh, judge that city and not only Sodom, but Gomorrah and some of the other surrounding towns. The people in these cities towns have become so wicked, so unjust, so immoral, so corrupt, that there is an outcry against them. That's mentioned in verse 20. Most of your translations mention an outcry. Robert Alter's commentary says the word for outcry is the Hebrew word, cries of the oppressed. It's the cry of victims of cruelty Violence, injustice. Ezekiel 16, verse 49, we read, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. And in Jude 7, we read, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. God says the outcry of the victims being crushed and violated is so strong. It's coming up before me. It's so great that I'm personally going down to look and assess the situation to see if this means judgment. But in doing so, and as Abraham is in the company of the Lord, God invites Abraham to intervene for these cities. He does this in several ways. First, verse 17, he says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Have you ever looked at someone and said, You know, I don't know if I really ought to tell you this, but... When you say that, you've, you've already basically communicated with that person that you trust them, that you, haven't, that you want to share something important and that you're, you're trusting them uh, with, with this important news. Secondly, verse 22, a second invitation for Abraham to intervene. God sends the two angelic beings on ahead. So at that point, it's only God and Abraham together. It's a way of making Abraham feel more comfortable in the discussion. 
And third, verse 21, there's a phrase, if not, if not. It's an invitation to Abraham to have a discussion. It means God's meaning, I'm seriously thinking about this. I'm making a, a determination, and I want your input, Abraham. So over and over, God is inviting Abraham to step forward and participate and intervene for these cities. Verse 23, we read, Then Abraham approached him. Some of the translations say Abraham drew near. That's kind of odd because isn't Abraham already right there before the Lord standing in front of him? Yes. So if he's already right there in his presence, what does it mean that he drew near or approached him? Was he six feet away, social distancing, and moved to three feet? Well, uh, we don't know. But we do know this, that the term approached him, drew near. It's a legal term. It means to come with a case. God is inviting Abraham to intervene on behalf of Sodom and to be their legal representative. How do you think that makes Abraham feel? Abraham takes up this priesthood to represent the people of the plain. Now, those of you who have been a part of the series remember a few chapters back in the book of Genesis that Abraham has actually had uh, uh, correspondence and a relationship with Sodom and with the king of Sodom in particular. Remember, Abraham rescued the king of Sodom, along with his nephew Lot and family and the people of Sodom from Kedolomar and his allies who had captured the city. Abraham defeated Kedolomar and set these people free, these Canaanites free. So Abraham has some familiarity with the people and the king of Sodom. And now he's been invited to represent them. And he executes this priesthood in surprising ways. First, notice that his plea for the cities is universal. Notice he doesn't say, Lord, would you please take my loved ones, Lot and his family, would you please take them out of Sodom and then you could just nuke the rest of those dirty pagans. No. He says, verse 24, would you spare the place? He pleads with God's mercy for Canaanites. Next, he, uh, Abraham appeals to the justice of God. Verse 25, will not the judge of all the earth do right? What a question. It's not him questioning the justice of God. It's a rhetorical question. He's saying, of course you are a righteous God. You cannot ignore injustice and turn a blind eye to those who are breaking your holy law. Sin demands your judgment. This is our main point today. The main point of our sermon that the judge of all the earth will do right. This is Abraham's starting point. But then... He asks an amazing question, and I'll summarize verses 23 and 24. Will you not spare, or we can use the word forgive, the, whole, the, the place, the whole city, the many, for the sake 
of the righteous few. Abraham says, I'm not looking for forgiveness of these people in spite of your righteousness. No, you're a holy, just God. But could you value the righteousness of the few so much that it covers the unrighteousness of the many? Could you spare the whole city for a righteous remnant inside it? As a Western civilization, I think we struggle with this concept because we are so individualistic. Our thinking is, it doesn't matter what my father, what my grandfather, what my nation has done. I only stand or I only fall on my own record. I'm only responsible for me. Nobody else. Now, that's very American. It's very independent. And it may seem right to you. But the majority of the world holds a different, and I would suggest a more balanced view. And so does the Bible. The balanced view is, of course, individual responsibility is important. But just as important and as real is corporate responsibility. Those with whom I live in solidarity with, my family, my community, my nation, I share some responsibility with them. One quick example from the Old Testament. Some of you are familiar in the book of Joshua, chapter 7, of a man named Achan. After God gave the Israelites a victory over the city of Jericho, God told the people of Israel, you are not to take any of the bounty, the plunder. That's all dedicated to me. Do not touch any of it. Those of you that know the story remember that Achan took some gold and silver he disobeyed God and he hid those in his tent. And after a while, it's discovered that Achan has committed a treacherous sin. He has taken the forbidden plunder. What happens? Achan, his children, his animals, all his livestock, even the tent he lives in, all of that is taken outside the camp of Israel. They are all stoned to death and burned. And we say, that's not fair. It was Achan who sinned. Only he should have been punished. And we don't understand the concept of corporate responsibility and living in, what it means to live in solidarity in a community, and even in a family. Corporate responsibility, the blessings and the cursings I share with those whom I live in solidarity with. But in this passage, in Genesis 18, Abraham is asking, can that principle not work in reverse? If it's true that the sins of others could impact me and bring guilt to me, what about the possibility that the righteousness 
of someone else with whom I'm in solidarity with could come to me as well. Can it work in reverse? Gerhard von Rod says in his commentary, this is what Abraham is doing. It's a theological investigation, and it's radical. He's asking, quote, Could not God so honor the righteous that, that the righteousness of a small minority could provide a reprieve for the whole city? End of quote. Von Rod goes on to say, quote, Abraham is in great anguish of mind, knowing that we are but dust and ashes. We have no right to ask this. But God's gracious righteousness dawns on Abraham and encourages his faith as the dialogue continues until he realizes the astonishing fact that the righteousness of a remnant could so please a righteous God that it would stem the judgment. So predominant is God's will to save over his will to punish. End of quote. It's the concept that James tells us in James 2.13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so Abraham begins pleading with God on this basis. Oh Lord, would you please spare the city for 50 righteous people? What about 45, 40, 30, 20? And what about 10? Could the city be spared for their sake? And to Abraham's amazement and astonishment over and over, God keeps saying, yes, yes. I hear your intercession. I hear your pleas. Yes, I'll spare the city if those many people, righteous people, are found. So great is my will to save over my will to punish that I can love the righteousness of the few and allow it to cover the unrighteousness of the many. But doesn't it seem that just as Abraham is getting to the climax of this intercession, he stops. He gets to 10. God says yes. And he goes home. It's almost like an unfinished symphony. What's the question that we're waiting to hear? What if Abraham had prayed one more time, Oh Lord, I will speak one more time. How amazing that the righteousness, loving, but gracious God would save the city for 50, 40, 30, 20, even 10. But dear Lord, would you save the city for one? For one? Could one righteous person be enough to save the whole? But regardless, Abraham has learned an amazing principle in priesting before God. Mercy triumphs judgment. That the righteousness of the few can stem God's judgment and even spare the many unrighteousness. But we know the rest of the story, don't we? And we'll read about it and hear more about it next week in the sermon. 
there were not even ten righteous people found in Sodom. And the next morning, when Abraham arises early at dawn, he looks toward the cities of the plain, and there's a burning fire, smoke billowing up. God's fire and brimstone and judgment has fallen on Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. So what do we learn from all this? What's our takeaways today? One, the wheels of God's justice may grind exceedingly slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. Meaning what? A holy, righteous God cannot turn a blind eye to sin. He is merciful, but he is equally just. Do you know that Sodom and its wickedness and its judgment is mentioned in 14 different books of the Bible for a total of 47 times? It's a repeated illustration and warning that God is a consuming fire and those apart from Christ will be cast forever into the lake of fire. Oh friend, today is the day of salvation. If you have never repented of your sin and put your personal faith in Jesus, inviting Him to come into your life, won't you do that today? There is time, there is opportunity today. Your sins can be forgiven. You can be made righteous before a holy God by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus. Please, I beg you today, receive Him into your life. Ask His forgiveness of your sin. God is merciful. If you will turn to Him, He is there with open arms, ready to to receive you and forgive you. Second, Abraham learns that God's mercy triumphs over judgment. Will not the judge of all the earth do right, he asked. And by his intercession to the righteous judge, he finds the answer. Each time he intercedes, it's yes, 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 yes. To his last plea, if only ten people are are found that are righteous, would you spare the city? Yes. Third, Abraham's priesting points to a greater high priest. Abraham is simply pointing us to the great high priest, Jesus Christ himself. Though Abraham valiantly and boldly interceded for Sodom and the cities, he was unable to save them. He discovers that he needs a greater high priest, and that great high priest is our Lord Jesus. Abraham discovered the principle that the righteousness of someone else can save me. But Jesus executed the principle by giving his life on Calvary's cross as a ransom for many. 
And when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you enter into solidarity with him. His righteousness becomes yours. You were spared the wrath of God for his sake. Because Jesus is the perfect and eternal high priest. Where is Jesus right now? Well, you know, for those of us, we say, you know, he's in, he's, he's, he's in my heart, yes. But where is Jesus? Jesus, the book of Hebrews tells us, Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand making intercession. That's what a high priest does, intercedes on our behalf. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I don't know about you, but I desperately need someone to continually intercede for me as a broken sinful man before the throne of God. And Jesus is there doing that, the great high priest. Aren't you thankful for that important role that he has as the great high priest on our behalf? So we've talked about Abraham, the first priest, Jesus Christ, the great priest. Finally, let's consider the new priests. You and me. Revelation 1.6 says, To him who loves us and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve God. And 2 Peter 2.9, a verse Pastor Andy refers to often, includes the phrase, But you are a royal priesthood. The calling, the responsibility of what was once for the elites, the Levites, the Abrahams, the Moseses, the Aarons. That privilege, that calling, that responsibility is now your calling. My calling. Some of you are thinking, oh my. If that's true, what, what does this look like? What am I supposed to do if I'm, if I'm a priest, a new priest in Christ? Well, that's our action step this morning. Practice your privilege of priesting. Will you say that with me? Practice your privilege of priesting. How? Begin, I think, by daily recognizing who you are in Christ. That you literally, truly, not just figuratively, but you truly are a priest or a priestess before God. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you're saying, Lord, as your priest, how would you have me carry out my priestly duties today? Have you ever prayed that? Like Abraham, it will certainly include interceding for others. You know, we talk about here at this church, who are the people that we live with, we work with, and we play with that we could help point to Jesus Christ? Well, 
take that same circle of people that you that comes to your mind, you live with, you work with, you play with, people that you think may not know and have a personal relationship with God. Are you interceding for them? Are you praying regularly for them? Interceding on others' behalf before God's judgment falls and they are eternally separated from God. The Old Testament priest also offered sacrifices. Well, in their case, the Old Testament priests offered animal sacrifices every day. They did this as God commanded, as a covering for the sins of the people. Thankfully, we don't have to offer animal sacrifices, but we are to offer sacrifices as a priest, as a new priest, a priestess. What are the sacrifices that you are to offer? Hebrews 13, 15 says, Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. You know, especially when things have seemingly turned against you. Maybe your health, maybe your finances, maybe a relationship, something else. But something has really turned against you. At that moment when you are so down and so discouraged, can you lift your eyes and say, God, I don't understand it. And it's not what I would have chosen, but I praise you for what you're doing. Please accomplish your will and your purposes. That sacrifice of praise as a priest before God. Another sacrifice, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, that you offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, Daily, as God's new priest, we are offering the sacrifice of our bodies to Him and our minds to Him to be conformed more and more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Finally, our, priest, our priesting is resting in the promise that someone the great someone is priesting for you. As we read in Hebrews 7, Jesus, the great high priest, is on the Father's right hand, ever interceding for you. What a comfort. So, as you practice your privilege of priesting, He, Jesus, is priesting for you. What a comfort. What a comfort. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that the righteousness of one has come to us and has covered our sin. And especially as we now come to your table, please remind us again of the precious sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the privilege now of being your priest and for our great high priest who intercedes for us. We ask this in his name for his glory. Amen.